We have two scripture readings this morning. The first is from the book of Luke, chapter 8. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And from Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every Sunday morning, we read a call to worship that acknowledges the variety of reasons that people walk through the doors of a church. And for the month of September, we're kind of picking apart some of those reasons. Last week, we talked about how people come with a spiritual curiosity, how it draws people to one of the few places where questions about the meaning of life are welcomed and where faith is still encouraged. But why else do people continue to walk through the doors of a church? Well, for some of us, it's a longing for community that inspires us to find others we can journey alongside through all of life's ups and downs. Now, there was a day and a time when church was the hub of a community, and quite literally often at the center of a community. I think about uh, the history of this building and the congregation that built this, St. John's, uh, their congregation actually, I think it was 60 years ago, their church burnt down uptown Waterloo, and they were wrestling and agonizing over where to rebuild. They were concerned about building on this plot of land because it was so far from the center of the city, if you can imagine that. Like, really, it's, it's just far out there. At that point in time, the membership of the congregation was 2,500. The population of the city was 21,000. Can you imagine a church that had a population of about 13% of its city's population? And that may have very well been the high-water mark for churches in our Canadian context. This historical graph, I kind of cut it off at 1961, so you can see when this building was built, and, and you see what has happened to church attendance in the decades since then, right down to, well, 2015 as far as it goes. Over time, coffee shops, cinemas, and arenas dethroned the church as the primary gathering places in our communities. I came across this quote uh, in a book by Hubert Dreyfus and Sean Dorrance Kelly called All Things Shining. They say that sports may be the place in contemporary life where people find sacred community most easily. There is no essential difference, really, in how it feels to rise as one in joy to sing the praises of the Lord or to rise as one in joy to sing the praises of the Hail Mary Pass, the Immaculate Reception. Ouch. A little sacrilegious maybe, but a little honest as well. Last week, the stats came out. 
109 million people watched an NFL game. 109 million people watched an NFL football game last week. I was thinking about, did that many people show up for church on Sunday morning? And there aren't numbers, you can't like track it, but I was looking at some of the numbers around how frequently people attend church and population, and I'm thinking the answer is probably no. I think probably more people watched the NFL than showed up at church on Sunday morning. I did both. Now, you add to this the growing appeal of online community, which would just be a whole morning in and of itself to talk about. It's pretty clear that even if people aren't showing up for church, they're still longing for community. People are still longing and looking for opportunity to connect with other people, and for a variety of different reasons, too. Sometimes it's because we feel isolated, like we feel like we're just doing life on our own. Sometimes it's a desire for friendship. Sometimes we want to do something meaningful with other people. Sometimes it's that we're looking for support through whatever stage of life it is that we're going through. Some of us are looking for an experience of family where maybe we don't have much of an experience of family. And this longing of ours is deeply rooted in who we are as human beings, in who we were created to be. If we go all the way back to our Genesis story, the Bible says that the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I mean, he's there all naked with a deer and stuff like that, but there was no other human for him to be in relationship with. And I know that as the story goes on, you know, there was Eve was created and he had this partner. And I think sometimes we can maybe abuse or misuse this passage as if a spouse is the answer to all of our loneliness, but that's just not the case. No, humanity needs relationship, and that can come in many different shapes and sizes. And so to a very degrees, we all long to belong. We all long to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. So it's a time of year where all kinds of different things kind of signal the onset of of fall in a new season, including images like this around our city, you know, used furniture sitting out on the lawn. So a couple of weeks ago, we moved our oldest son, Owen, into uh, a house that he's living in with some friends in Hamilton, and uh, Melissa was down there helping him do some cleaning, and, uh, and I was down there helping him move in kind of a mattress to get the final touches, setting things up. And while we were moving in there, uh, one of his roommates had purchased a, or not purchased, had, had found a piece of furniture at the side of the road. Uh, it was not a chair, but it was like a dresser. And, and the roommate was wondering, you know, actually didn't fit in their room. Would they be interested in Owen having it in, in his room? And he's looking at it. And it's like a piece of junk. Like, I mean, if you, if you spent a lot of time, like, sanding it and refinishing it, some of the drawers didn't open and close. Like, maybe it would be usable. So in a very nice way, he, he declined the offer of this piece of furniture. Uh, but then it was a few days later, he showed up at the house, and, and there was a, a truck outside. It was one of those, you know, junk removal services. And, and there were a couple of guys going in, and he's like, what's going on? So he asked his roommate, and, and they say, well, you know, I called the junk removal people to take the, the furniture away. And he started thinking, like, well, you, you got it from the curb. Why don't you just put it back at the curb, right? And then his roommate's like, well, yeah, and, and it's actually a little more expensive than I thought it would be, too. I had to pay... $240. And Owen and his roommates, they're all like kind of looking at each other and they're just like, okay, wait a second. You found a piece of garbage at the side of the road and brought it into your house and now you're paying someone $240 to take it out of your house. Like, what is going on here? And I, I asked Owen, I was like, did they not think like maybe I should ask a second opinion of someone? Like, does this seem like a steep price to you? 
you know, but no. And I think that person right there learned an expensive lesson about the valuing, the value of having other people in our lives. When we make decisions, when we kind of go ahead and do things without like having other input in our lives, we can make some expensive mistakes. $240 for a student is a lot of money, right? That is an expensive mistake. So we need other people in our lives. Well, this morning's reading, it, it introduces us to the first Christian community, if you will. Jesus is traveling about from town to town, and he would gather people who would follow around with him. So we're told about who was there. The 12 were with him, right? Um, and we hear lots of stories about the 12 following Jesus. But this passage identifies a few other people. We're told in this passage that there were also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And I think it's interesting because a lot of the depictions of people following Jesus is actually just a bunch of guys hanging around him. But this passage makes it clear that that was not the case. There was Mary Magdalene. We're told that she had seven demons cast out of her. We're told that there was Susanna and many others. So there's a lot of women following Jesus around here. Um, And we're specifically introduced to someone named Joanna. And we actually have some some interesting details about her life. She was the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Now, why is that significant? What does it matter that she was married to this guy? Like, what's the connection here? Well, if you've been around church, you, have, you would recognize the fact that, that Herod and Jesus don't really go together very well, those two names, right? Herod's father had tried to have all of the, the children killed when he heard about this king who was being born, and so there's this long line of animosity between them. In fact, there's this little passage in Luke chapter 13. It says, at, the time, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus replied, Go tell that fox, I'll drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. So you can tell there's like a little like thing going on between the two of them. Herod's trying to kill Jesus. Jesus is calling him a fox. Like he's like slamming him. And so here we have Joanna. Okay, now get this. She's married to the manager of Herod's household. All right? Now, the manager of Herod's household, this would be someone who had, was there for all of the inside dirt, the inside scoop and that. And so Herod and Jesus are these enemies, and yet Herod's manager's wife is following Jesus around from place to place. It's fantastic. And so I think there's a reason that Luke put this in. He's just like, see, we even got, we even got those people following Jesus here. Like, this is great. But she wasn't just following Jesus around. The passage tells us that these women were helping to support them, Jesus and the rest of the followers, out of their own means. And so, in a sense, she's actually kind of using Herod's money to help support Jesus' mission. And so, maybe that's why Herod was out to kill him. I don't know. He found out about this. It's just fantastic. But these women are using whatever it is that they have for their income, and they're supporting this group of people who is following Jesus around. Now, something I can't help but notice about this group of people, the 12 that were there and all these women who've been cured, is that they weren't the best and the brightest of their day. These were not the top 30 under 30 following Jesus around. Rather, this eclectic group of people shared a common experience. Their lives were changed by an encounter with Jesus, and they were committed to doing life together. Oz Guinness wrote a popular book a number of years ago called The Call, and he says, however strong our individual callings are, our sense of corporate calling is often very faint. Each of us is summoned individually and therefore uniquely and personally. But we are not summoned to be a bunch of individual believers, rather to be a community of faith. Well, is any part of our calling harder than this one? I was reading uh, an email um, list that I'm on this week, and the author was kind of highlighting this, this kind of classic children's book called I Like You. And I thought I'd share a couple of pages here from this book with you. 
The first one, when I think something is important, you think it's important too. We have good ideas. Another one I like. When I say something funny, you laugh. I think I'm funny, and you think I'm funny too. <laughs> and this is how we build relationships many times. We, we get together with people who think like us and who laugh at the same kinds of jokes, and we think each other are funny and we think each other are smart. But true community includes something that's more than just pats on the back. And so there's another page that I wanted to show. I like you because when I am feeling sad, you don't always cheer me up right away. I like that one. Because in order to live well, we need people like this surrounding us. People with whom we share things in common, yes, but also people who truly want what's best for us, who are willing to let us go through something difficult because they know it's actually good for us in the long run. Now, the second reading we heard from Acts chapter 2, it's a classic. It begs to be read whenever you talk about what it means for Christians to be in community with one another. I think it's not, shouldn't be lost on us that Acts was also written by Luke. And so Luke, who introduces us to this first version of a Christian community where Jesus and the Twelve and a bunch of women are following him around, he also introduces us to the, the first community after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. So Jesus, people are following him around, and then as he's kind of departing, he's letting them know, you got to keep up what we started here. And so Acts chapter 2 gives us this first glimpse of what that community was like. Tim Keller, who pastors a church in New York City, writes that there is no more important means of discipleship of the formation of Christian character than deep involvement in the life of the church, the Christian community. Now, right there, some of you might getting, be getting a little nervous. The concept of deep involvement might be intimidating, especially to those who are a little more introverted. And I understand where you're coming from. I, I was looking for a cartoon to help people who, who don't understand introversion understand a little better, and I like this one. So, you're an introvert. That means you're shy? No, it means I hate people. <laughs> okay, I, loved, I laughed a lot at that one. And anyone who is an introvert understands that. Um, so, this idea of like being deeply involved in a, a community of faith like this, that can be like just like so easy for a number of people in this room. And man, that is so hard for a bunch of other people in this room. Because you don't hate people, but you certainly would rather be at home reading a good book this morning. It's difficult. It can be challenging. For an introvert, the Acts 2 community actually can sound intimidating. Things like all the believers were together. All of them? That's a lot of people in one place. Or every day they continued to meet together. Like, we do this once a week, people. Come on, it's, it's okay. Every day. If I spend every day around my family, I get squirrely. I'm like, okay, I need to get away from you people, you know. Can't imagine spending every day with all of you. <laughs> or vice versa. Like, it works both ways, right? But think of the results of this whole life commitment. What happened? Signs and wonders. Everyone's material needs were met. They met together with glad and sincere hearts. They enjoyed the favor of the wider community. And every day people whose lives had been transformed by Jesus were joining them. These are some of the gifts that came with that deep community. Carlo Corretto, a Catholic author, writes, what power would be generated were all Christians to keep saying, now I'm making a start. Now I'm trying to make a community. I don't want to be on my own anymore. I want to have companions on my journey to live my life with them. Even if there are only a few of us, I want to make a start. Like, just imagine what great things would happen if we would say, 
we're on board here. We're going we're gonna to make this happen. We're going to give it a whirl. Even if it's small, even if it's difficult, we're going to make it happen. Regardless of our disposition, Keller's comments about the importance of deep involvement in the life of the church hold true. So we need to find meaningful ways to connect with one another in light of our place on that extrovert-introvert scale. As I was writing about this longing for community, I I sat down at my desk uh, and there were a couple of membership applications, a couple of people in our church community wanting to become members, and I was just kind of reading over what this commitment is about and some of the language that we use, and I wanted to pull out just a couple of lines of what these people are saying they want to commit to. I will actively seek ways to serve the Elevation community, generously contributing my skills, finances, and time. As I commit myself to building the church, I welcome and return the embrace of the community, trusting that my health and growth is important to them. There's this mutual beneficial thing happening, that when we commit to the church, the church is committing to us. It's what we said in the child dedications early. It's what we'll say outside during the baptisms after the service. This idea of like, I'm committing to this community, this community is committing to me. And this morning, we're trying to remind one another how much we need this. Because when the church is healthy, the members are healthy. When the members are healthy, the church is healthy. So in summary, when you show up at church with a longing for community, that longing will be met, and you will experience the full and abundant life you've always wanted. Now that's about as realistic as Napoleon Dynamite's legendary campaign promise, Vote for Pedro, and all of your wildest dreams will come true. I'm sorry to break it to you. But if you show up here with a longing for community, you will probably be disappointed. In fact, if you show up here with a longing for community, there are just so many things that can go wrong. And the primary culprit is people. I'll tell you what will happen. People who have settled into peer group, you'll find people who have settled into peer groups and don't seem open to newcomers. You'll find people who lead busy lives and forget to check in on you. You'll find people who care about different things and come across as unsupportive. You'll find people who want to keep their relationships on the surface. You'll find people who are at different places on their spiritual journey. You'll find people who expect too much of you and end up pushing you away. You'll find people who won't notice if you've been to church or not in three months. I know what you might be thinking. This is the worst sales pitch for a church I've ever heard. And if I was trying to sell it, you'd be right. I want to read a quote from Jean Vanier. Almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal. It all seems perfect. They feel they are surrounded by saints, heroes, or at the least, the most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater their idealization of the community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. When we get our hopes up for something, when we get our hopes really high for something, we risk being let down. I mean, my hopes, as yours, are pretty high about the Downton Abbey movie coming out this week. Like, like I know we're all really excited about this, right? The conclusion to everything we've always wanted and hoped for this family. The higher our hopes get, the further we can fall. What if it doesn't meet up to all of our expectations? Scott McKnight, oh man, this is good. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community.
when the dream that we have of this place, of how perfect it should be, is more important to us than the actual people we're living alongside, that can be dangerous. Because the church isn't an idea. It's a flesh and blood reality. It's people. It's me and you and you and even you. I didn't look at anyone specifically. It was a <laughs> middle distance stare in that direction. Now, there's something good, I think, about having a wide variety of churches scattered across our city. And there's something good about that. Diversity. We're different people, and so we should, you know, community's going to look different in different places, and, and worship's going to look different, and preaching's going to look different, and midweek groups are going to look different. Everything that we do. So it's a good thing to have a wide variety out there. Plus, there's an accountability. You know, I think if a, if a church, is only one church in a community, then there's no accountability, right? But it makes it too easy to leave too soon, I think. I think the wide variety of great churches in our city make it easy to say, when things get rough, uh, I think I'm going to go elsewhere. I was talking to a pastor, this is like a year and a half ago, at the beginning of a, of a very difficult season that our church went through in 2018, and I remember talking to him and, and expressing concern about people leaving, and he said to me, he said, everyone's got a list of why they want to leave your church. And I was like, that is the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and I get it, there are all kinds of reasons And it's unfortunate that it's so easy to do that, right? So here's the encouragement. Here's the challenge for us. Peter Block, who writes a lot about community, not in the context of church, but just neighborhoods and community as a whole. This is what he says, and I think this really applies to us too. To create a more positive and connected future for our communities, we must be willing to trade their problems for their possibilities. I like that. Any church that you find yourself in, including ours, you will find problems. But we need to find ways to take those problems and turn them into possibilities and to become part of the solution. You will be disappointed. So when you are, or if you are right now, make the trade. Say, yeah, you know what, this is a problem, but there's some some more potential here that I can actually bite into, and I'm going to choose that instead. You know what can't be forgotten while we're busy acknowledging that people in the church are bound to disappoint us? We can't forget that we're people too. We can't forget that we're the people who sometimes do the disappointing, who sometimes forget to check in, who sometimes don't show the interest or the care, who sometimes say the wrong thing. Now, in the Vanier quote I read earlier, he talked about the initial phases of engaging with the community. Idealization, everything's going to be perfect here. And then disenchantment. Oh, things aren't perfect after all. And then he says, if people manage to get through this second period, they come to a third phase, that of realism and true commitment. They no longer see other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and, each, growing and each with their own hope, The community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth, and they are ready to walk with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are. They are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. I like that. I think it's a great thing for us to 
cling on to as we think about this longing for community that brings us to church on a Sunday morning. There's all kinds of benefits that can happen here, but there'll be all kinds of things that will let us down and disappoint as well. But if we can accept that we're, we're all people and we're all trying to follow God in, in our best way, then we'll be able to discover something beautiful. Now, normally at this point in the service, I would dismiss us and invite you to join us in the gym for some discussion. And we would talk about what I've talked about. But instead, we're going to do a little different. We're going to go outside for a little practice. We're going to gather around a baptismal tank, and we're going to follow that by a potluck lunch. We're going to have an opportunity to do community with one another. If you're here because you have a longing for community, maybe a couple of questions that we would have asked around tables that instead you can let rattle around in your brain through the day and the week. What do you hope to receive from the people sitting around you? And what can you give to these same imperfect people? I want to say this. I think a lot of the onus on building strong community at church lies on us as individual believers. But it also, to, a, to an extent, uh, is part of the responsibility of the church's leadership. And over the last few weeks, our staff team has been having some exciting conversations about a new initiative where we want to help build community in, in more and creative ways. I'm just going to show you a little bit of a snapshot. A bunch of pins and a bunch of elastic bands on a picture of our city, a map of our city. We're coming up with ideas of banding people together and bringing people together around the neighborhoods that we live in to help us make it easier to connect, help it easier for new people to find their way into our community, help it be easier for people to care for one another in our church community. We were at a, some of our staff team walked over to the Christian Horizons building just around the corner from us. They had a grand opening. And one of the people who was giving a speech, they had this great quote. I jotted it down when I got back. They said, belonging is when someone is missed. We have this longing for community, but we only really feel belong if we feel missed. And so I want you to know that as much as it's each of our individual responsibilities to build into this, that our church's leadership is very committed to getting us closer to this place where we're all missed, where we all belong. I'm going to close with a quote from a friend of mine's blog. He has had a difficult journey in the last five months, maybe. Back in May, his wife, they're same age as Melissa and I, his wife was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer and spread to her liver. And just absolutely out of nowhere, and it's been a nightmare. And obviously I've been tracking with him over these months, and, and he has a blog that he's been writing, and... It's just so inspiring to see how their family is walking through this just nightmarish ordeal. And a couple, uh, early, in the middle of last week, he, he had a blog post, and he was giving an update on, on all how things are going with his wife and how the kids are doing. And then he, he talked about how he'd gone back to church for the first time in a while. His church had just said basically for the summer, just, just be with your family, just be with your wife, just go. We'll take care of things here. Just go. And so he'd gone back to his church for the first time, you know, over the course of the summer. And this is what he writes at the end of his blog. It was so good to worship together and simply be with our church family again. I know that the church, broadly speaking, isn't perfect, but there is no place on earth like it. Doing life without them would not be fun. We love our church community so much and are grateful for the relationships we have there. Just a throw in here, but you can't follow Jesus alone. And if you're unsure if it's even worth following Jesus, find a church community and discover him there. It's magical. 
beautiful, inspiring, and meaningful. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'd like to close in prayer. God, I give thanks for this place. You know, even as I think back to that graph and think about how many less people are showing up at churches to find this community and have this need for belonging met, I'm glad that everyone in this room showed up this morning. I'm glad that we have this place to gather in. And I'm glad that despite stats like that, you are still calling people to follow you and to follow you in community. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to be the heartbeat of our community. I ask that you would give us that vision for who we can become together, that you would help us to continue to gather around you and the story of your life, death, and resurrection, and so that we can live that kind of pattern out in our own spheres of influence. And God, I pray that you would help us to put up with one another, to deal with the disappointments and the shortcomings that we're bound to run into, and to take those problems and replace them with possibilities as we talked about this morning. God, give us a vision of who we can be and what we can do together as a community of people following you, just like the 12 and some women who were healed from all kinds of diseases. God, we want to be those same kinds of followers, and we ask that your Spirit would give us the life to do that. As we head outside now, as we gather around a baptismal tank, as we gather around plates of food, we ask that you would um, help us to put this into practice, to form those relationships, build those bonds, and strengthen us as a community here. In Christ's name, amen.